This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody. This is Mike Yuseem. This is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to be talking today with the authors of a new book. Let me give you the title, and then we'll introduce the authors. Great title, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But No One Wants to Die. So that's got your attention. Um, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Amy Gutman and Dr. Jonathan Moreno. Amy Gutman is the president, of course, of University of Pennsylvania. She's also professor of political science and professor of communication here. Jonathan is what we call a Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor, P-I-K, and he's associated with departments in the medical school, history and sociology of science and philosophy. And I think that, Jonathan, that means you have at least three separate offices. Don't don't tell my colleagues. (laughs) Okay. He's never here because he's somewhere else. uh, But I know you're at all three. Um, And we're going to jump right into the the book. I I love the title. Uh, I've I've actually read the book as well. And so maybe, Amy, beginning with you, help us appreciate why the two of you decided to write the book. And um, because it is both uh, historical and academic in the best sense of that phrase, but also intended to uh, shape our thinking about the future of uh, public policies on health. Help us understand why you wrote the book together, why you wrote the book. Amy. Well, thanks, Mike, first of all, for having us here on Wharton Sirius XM. It's a pleasure. And I, I love to be back. Great to so, have you back. Thank you. We, long before we ever imagined writing the book, we both had childhood experiences that brought the importance of healthcare decisions to the fore. And we recount those in the book. Mine happened to be one of these experiences that you'll never forget as a 10-year-old where with my mom, we had to bring my grandmother to the emergency room and she had to have her leg amputated. And the doctor Mm. asked my mother's permission to amputate my grandmother's leg, even though my grandmother was fully conscious. She was in pain, but fully conscious. And my mother, street smart as she was without a college education, said, why are you asking my my permission rather than my mother's permission? And she told me later that she never would have forgiven herself had she not insisted that the doctor ask Hmm. for the permission of the patient. And that came back to me decades later when I was chairing the Presidential Commission on Bioethics for President Obama. I would never have imagined as a 10-year-old that 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 situation would be forefront in my mind Hmm. in writing a book. And I asked Jonathan, who was senior advisor on the Presidential Commission, which I chaired to co-author the book, because we both were struck by how many 
more decisions there are to make about health care in our lives, how much more health care can do for us today than it could do for us in the early 1960s when that happened to me and my mom and grandma, and how important it is for all of us to know enough about health care to take leadership in our own lives. I know you teach leadership, Mike. Yeah. Well, this is about, this mm. book is about how we can lead our own lives in a better way by knowing more about healthcare and take leadership roles as citizens in our society. And Amy, the book makes a compelling argument that our defining elements of what we consider ethical on the part of physicians and, and care providers there has been a kind of an evolution in our thinking. And let me just throw this at Jonathan. Uh, away from doctor knows best to ensuring that patients, your point, Amy, are fully informed on what they're facing, what the likelihood of survival may be if it's a form of cancer. And so, uh, Jonathan, maybe to give that question a sharp edge, what accounts for this shift in mindset over the last 30 or 40 years? Well, so many things, and the historians of medicine are, are um, arguing about this now. But clearly, we can think about the um, advances in technology, about the different ideas in the post-World War II era about um, per personal self-determination, and particularly in the 1960s, which I still remember, uh, Maslow's notion of self-actualization. The, um, the, the civil rights movements of the 1960s included a patients' rights movement, mm -hmm. in fact, a mental patients' rights movement, really. Um, and then you have the fact that medicine was getting more expensive. Medicine and healthcare uh, were very clearly becoming more and a bigger and bigger part of our gross domestic product in the 1970s. Uh, this was well recognized by health economists and political leaders. So many things came together to put more of a focus on the patient's role. And one element that is very important, the stories that we tell in the book, many of them are about human experiments, uh, the fact that there, that um, ideas about how to do clinical trials, human experiments in a more systematic way were accepted, but that meant that doctors knew more about what they intended to do with you and your body mm -hmm. than they had in the past. So this created a situation which be patients began to say, particularly as scandals erupted about human experiments, like, like the syphilis study, of course, in the early 70s when that was revealed, uh, hey, how come they're making decisions for my body in this very systematic way and I'm not part of that? Amy, do you want to pick up on, on that theme and offer a thought as well? Yeah. So one of the things that's so striking about the evolution from the black bag-toting doctor. That was my pediatrician who actually advised me where to go to college. <laughs> um, but that black bag was a mixed bag, it turned out, because while medical paternalism actually brought doctors closer to individual patients, doctors in those days didn't have that many tools in their black bag. And sometimes they use tools that without their patient's consent. That wasn't the case with my pediatrician, who was wonderful. But there was also a large part of America that didn't have the services of that black bag toting doctor, minorities, low income people. We were low income, but it just turned out um, that we were able to get health care 
in a small town. So that were, those were the old days. And now fast forward to today, where there are so many technologies for reproduction, and we have choices about how to have children that we didn't have in those days. And there are so many choices about how to die. So whether it's from birth to death, there are big choices to be made. And we think it's just really important that people have the, know what their options are and have access to them. And we did have yeah. fun, although the topics are heavy. I think we both had a lot of fun looking back at old doctor TV shows and movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, and how they evolved. How they right? evolved, which was so striking. Uh, I, I, I still, to this day, uh, show my undergrads clips from Dr. Kildare, the TV show from the early 60s. Not the film. I'm not that old. Um, well, the film series is pretty good, too. Uh, and then we, in the book, we sort of trace how the... The image of the doctor on television, the popular image of the doctor yeah. on television, and the patient's role changed so much in 20 years. And it actually reflects the arc of our story about patients taking the lead on their own health care. Doesn't it also reflect the arc of the American story? Indeed. So these changes are partly embedded in just cultural shifts that have been up and running for the last 50 years. Absolutely. And you see now images from Marcus Welby, MD, who was actually played by Robert Young, Father Knows Best, <laughs> so it was Doctor yep. Knows Best, to Nurse Jackie and House, who, you know, both of whom are terribly troubled individuals, <laughs> um, really shows the attitude that Americans now have that doctors are medical experts, but they're not moral experts, and they're uh. flawed individuals just as we are. What that means is really, it makes it really important for us as patients and as individuals to take charge of our own, what we want in our lives. Let's take, you know, having a child or how we want to die. It's not whether we're going to die, it's how we want to die. And there are great stories mm. uh, to be told with lessons from them. Brittany Maynard being my, one of my favorites um, about lessons in dying. Let's think about that uh, for a moment in the sense that it feels to me from reading your book that the revolution in thinking from doctor knows best to patient knows best, it's not that it's complete, but it's pretty far along. I think, and you've just both uh, said as much. The next section of your book, though, takes up... Um, issues of dying with dignity and yeah. a whole range of issues around how we need to work with people who are in, in the last phase of their life. And it feels for me, to me from reading that part of the book, that's a revolution still in process. Where is it going? Do you agree with that, first of all? Then yeah. where, where do you think it's going? No, when my father died in the early 1970s, a physician, um, hospice was only getting off the ground, and we actually mm -hmm. had to create a hospice-like situation for him because he wanted to die at home. As a physician, uh, the one place he did not want to die was a hospital. But, and we were able to do that. And then we do now have hospice, but access to hospice is not easy, even if you have the wherewithal, in, in theory, uh, to get into a hospice program. Um, and we still are struggling with how much sedation to give patients uh, who are in pain uh, and and trying 
un, in uh, highly scrutinized institutions to be sure that we that people don't go so far that they violate what happens to be the law in a particular state. Now, of course, we also talk about the aid and dying laws in a number of states, which, well, and, and that's a, that, that has been very important. So there's been a revolution, and I think it's a very positive revolution. We think it is. We both agree on this, but it's very controversial. In death with dignity laws, which are very constrained laws, but Brittany Maynard championed these, a 29-year-old woman in 2014, so this is really recent, um, she championed having death with dignity law in California. She had to move to Oregon. Now New Jersey has been the latest state. And this is basically physician-assisted death for terminally ill patients who have less than six months to live, who have tried all the alternatives, who feel that if they don't take control of their death, they're going to lose their identity, they're going to suffer tremendously psychologically. And more and more Americans, a vast majority of Americans, are in mm. favor of this, even though the majority of doctors still oppose it, despite the fact that when surveyed doctors say they would like to have that alternative if they were in that position, which is precisely mm. Brittany Maynard's position. She said, I hope if anyone else has to walk a mile in my shoes, that they are not deprived of the choice that I had. And that seems to be the future to us, mm-hmm. along with having access for many more people, millions of people need access to palliative care, to hospice mm-hmm. care. And by the way, that's also an issue, I think, of equity. So some of these issues, well, they're universal, of course, But the way the American health system is currently structured and operates, uh, some have a more privileged access to the opportunity to have a family member pass with dignity. Do I have that right? Yes. And and what are we going to do about that? Well, access is a whole other chapter of our book, (laughs) and I think more than a chapter in American history, it's a perennial challenge for the United States of America, the most affluent, most innovative um, democracy on earth, which we're very proud of and supportive of, of giving access universally to basic health care. And we still haven't succeeded in that. And that access has to be affordable access, and that will yep. help everybody yep. because health care bills are skyrocketing for people who have access today. It's becoming a bigger and bigger part of our GDP. It's up to 19% of GDP and climbing. It's up to a bigger and bigger part of our take-home pay. So that challenge is the big political challenge of our time, probably. So pardon me for just a second while I remind our listeners that you are tuned in to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I am your host, Mike Hussein, and we are here today with Amy Gutman and Jonathan Moreno, authors of this very interesting, uh, compelling new book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But No One Wants to Die. And to pick up where we were just then, maybe, Jonathan, kicking over to you on this one, um, if moving from a mindset of the doctor knows all to the patient should be fully informed, if that's a relatively advanced um, agenda now, it sounds like questions of 
equal access or fair and equitable access is still in the early t- stages of where we're going. What do you now, think? Strangely enough, a, a presidential ethics commission came up close to the line in the li- 1980s. They didn't mm. quite say, and this is, by the way, a, a commission of Carter and Reagan appointees. They didn't quite say that there was a right to a basic level of health care, but they said that there was a, a, a social obligation to provide. Hmm. Uh, and and so, something about the word right, and Amy is more of the political philosopher than I am, uh, makes people anxious because if I say, we typically say in political philosophy, Amy will correct me if I'm wrong, if, if somebody has a right to something, that means that somebody has a duty to give it to them. Yeah. We haven't quite gotten to, in, in a formal, explicit way there, but I think as Amy says, we are moving there. It's, it, it, we have to move there. So, it's only because of the, mm. of the cost and the inefficiency and the inequity of the system. Yeah. So I also like the formulation that there's a social obligation, a moral obligation. There isn't a legal right now in our society to health care. So as a matter of fact, mm. we don't recognize it as a legal right. But more and more people on both sides of the aisle recognize the social obligation to make sure and the responsibility to make sure everybody who has basic needs, health care needs, has them met in an affordable way. It turns out the more universal we can make health care the provision of health care, the more affordable it's going to be because as anybody who knows the logic of insurance knows in order for insurance to work, you have to pool risks. Mm. And the more people whose risks you pool, the more affordable you can make health care. As long as we also bite the bullet, as our title suggests, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We also mean everybody wants everything that there is in healthcare, but nobody wants to pay the price. If we actually pay for those things that are cost effective, and a Wharton audience should recognize that, that, should appreciate that, then we can afford to meet healthcare needs. If we pay for everything, like any opioids that doctors irresponsibly Mm. prescribe or patients foolishly take, um, we spend money on things that are wasteful. Or if we don't provide insulin for everybody who needs it at an affordable price, and insulin can be affordable, then we create downstream Mm. problems of health care that are much more expensive than it is to provide insulin. So that's also what our book is trying to, you know, get people just to take ownership of, which is as citizens, let's move towards a way of having everybody afford health care and have access to it. We actually, as I think you know, we've gone on record as saying we don't think the way forward there is to take private health care insurance away from the 160 million Americans who have it, most of whom or many of whom don't want to lose it. And can I also just add to the problem of cost, which not only does it cost your listeners who are leaders, corporate leaders, money, uh, in, term, in, in terms of medical bills for, for physical ailments. But we decided to highlight early in the book uh, mental health care, which is, the, you know, which is neglected. Uh, and um, so depression, 
uh, it seems to be general agreement among pe people in public health, is the most expensive disorder there is in the world. Uh, who knows how many of your listeners who are in leadership roles in business have encountered this problem with their employees. Mm -hmm. It takes a while to, to appreciate what's going on sometimes with, with emotional problems. Um, but they are enormously costly, not only in a financial sense, right, but also in a moral sense. So, uh, for example, um, many of the people, 20, 25, 30 percent, depends who you talk to, who are in prison, have a diagnosable mental illness. So we like to say, oh, we've emptied up, out the mental hospitals, but in fact, the mental hospitals are now prisons. Now, that's a hmm. problem because many of those people are not going to be making a lot of money when they get out. They are not necessarily going to be fully functional as we would like them to be, but they will certainly not be functional at all if we don't attend to their mental health yeah. needs. Yeah, great point. Let me, uh, with only a couple of minutes remaining here, turn to the title of your epilogue, Transforming Minds. So just to say a word about the book and how you carry the argument, you draw on public policy, you draw on political philosophy, you draw on some amazing cases. I just I was riveted by some of the more personal accounts to get the ideas across. It's a great way to communicate bigger issues. People remember those uh, particulars. When it comes to transforming minds, it's a fundamental underpinning of why we, the lack of transformation for why we're in the situation that you've described so well today. Uh, what would you have people transform in their thinking, and how would that come about? Jonathan, why don't you take that one, and we'll close up here with Amy in a minute. Well, the theme of the book really is the way that uh, circumstances have created a new doctor-patient relationship. Yep. Uh, and so we, we argue, in the, I think, in the book, and we want the book to be a platform for uh, with all the other stuff that's going on in the in the society these days, to be a platform in which uh, many people can learn about how they are sort of de facto bioethicists, just talking about these things with their members of their family, about their health care, about an experiment that might, they might be part of, about a new breakthrough. Um, so that's, I think, the goal of uh, really of the book is to open up a, more of a public conversation about bioethics in everyday life. Hmm. Great, Amy. So I would think that given how much we all care about our health care, the health care of our family and friends, and how many choices we have, that we don't want to leave these to other people to make yeah. them for us. And if we don't take charge of our own health care, that of our family, and the choices that we have, and our society— we can be guaranteed other people are taking charge of it for us. And that's not a healthy situation. <laughs> the healthy situation and the ethos of America is if everybody's affected by something, everybody gets involved. So I would love to see more people step up whatever their views are, as long as they're informed views, because transforming minds is about educating ourselves take charge of the future of our own lives and the lives of our family, friends, community, and society by speaking up and taking positions on everything from 
who should have the opportunity to create families and how they create them to how we want our access to health care to go in our society and to make it affordable to how we want to end our lives. None of us want an end to our lives, but there's a final act in all of our lives. And then there's a beginning again, our, our responsibilities to future generations, which is also about transforming our future. I have great hope that when Americans step up and take charge, um, they get it right. It's a great note to end on. It's a great pair of notes to end on because we're really full circle now back at the title of this particular show, Leadership in Action. Mm. And in my words, you are say I'll put my words on it, uh, this is everybody's responsibility. Everybody has to lead. Followership here, we love follow, followers, but we also want everybody to take an active stand on thinking about death with dignity, about the distribution of opportunities, let's say, to have an organ that's vital for your, your survival, mm. equitably distributed. So thinking about this at the very micro level of a, of a listener, pulling thinking together, what advice would you have for what they might do to take some of these ideas and carry them forward? Yeah, so three things. One is be prepared when you go to a healthcare provider or when you're thinking about taking an action in politics for healthcare distribution, be prepared get informed in other words um be you know be open about what you care about and what's happening in your own life and the lives of people you care about and the the final thing i think is actually um be proactive a actually take action before there's a crisis like there was in my family, which was the first yeah. time I ever thought about ethics and health care, which is actually be proactive and, and do something. Yep. Um, that's, Ahead of time. Yeah. Jonathan? And we have, uh, in the last 60 or 70 years that we, that we write about in the book, we have created uh, formal systems in which people can... Um, register their preferences or identify somebody to make decisions for them in case they're yeah. not able to make decisions for themselves. That's a real advance. It's not easy to move from changing values to changing a, a, a legal process. So we should be grateful that we are where we are now so that people can take action the way Amy describes and the way that, that people could not, that our parents, our elders could not when we were kids. By the way, to make it very personal to end this, um, I think we're making progress in that uh, recently in a hospital for surgery, I was asked after my name, my birth date, did I have a living will written? Right. So I think that's where, right. the, that's where the universe if, is if going. If people do nothing else, having a living will totally. is a really, really important, not only for yourself, but for your family Absolutely. members. Absolutely, exactly. Yes. So let me uh, end on this. The book, again, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. People know where to get that. It's on all the um, uh, usual sites where you can order books of this kind. How else could somebody who's really interested in this topic, and we all are, so this is a lot of somebody's, how else could they find out more about what you're doing and where you're going with this set of issues? Many places, but since everybody listening here has a computer, just 
type in the title of the book, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven But Nobody Wants to Die, and it will bring them to a website with a lot of other information on it, including about not only their health, but about public health and how, mm -hmm. to, be, how to live healthier, yeah. which is something we all aspire to and struggle with and, and again achieve. and Wharton actually <laughs> ec behavioral yeah. economics is a very, very important, important. part of that excellent Jonathan and Amy thank you for taking the time to join our show today and uh, wonderful to see your new book thank you Mike. thank you Mike for more guest interviews check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play